Okay, so this is the final component of the second lecture, and I'm going to address the topic of statutory interpretation. Statutory interpretation has been covered in greater or less detail within this course. I am going to give it less attention than some of my colleagues who've taught this course have given it. That is not because I think that it is less important of a topic. Indeed, I think it's extremely important as a practical matter in practicing law. How you approach statutory interpretation is a matter of fundamental and paramount importance. However, to me, it's such a big topic that there isn't really a, a level of depth I could get into that doesn't lead to a escalating, uh, sort of opening more and more doors of statutory interpretation issues. Indeed, I saw a, a draft syllabus for this course, which had an idea of doing four six-hour lectures on statutory interpretation. I think if you were to go through that, you still wouldn't be really an expert in statutory interpretation. It just is hard and complicated and fundamentally important. So I want to instead have a more modest goal for us. I want you to get across a few basic and fundamental points about statutory interpretation that are necessary in order to understand some of the concepts we're going to approach soon in this course and some of the concepts that come up in administrative law in particular. The first thing that I want you to take away from this statutory interpretation discussion is that statutory interpretation is very hard and that different people can come to different conclusions as to what a statute means. Now, I'm not saying that's theoretically the right approach to law. That's another debate as to whether there is one real correct interpretation of a statute or whether there are, in fact, multiple reasonable interpretations. But descriptively, it is undoubtedly true that different reasonable people learned in statutory interpretation can look at the same statute and come to different interpretations. In the last component of this lecture, I talked about the Nadon case, decided by seven judges of the Supreme Court of Canada. Six of them interpreted the statute in one way. The seventh interpreted the statute at issue, the Supreme Court's act, in another way. You'll remember that that case turned on the key question of whether somebody who used to be a member of the Quebec Bar was qualified to be considered a judge from among the members of the Quebec Bar. From among, what does that mean? Does from among mean from among the current members? Or does from among mean from among people who once were members of the Quebec Bar? That very pedantic and small question decided the course of the Supreme Court of Canada's history. It decided whether Justice Mark Nadon, who's still under 75, still making decisions, would still be on the court right now, whether Justice Mark Nadon would be on that court or not. And indeed, Justice Clement Gascon was appointed instead of Justice Nadon Gascon. Justice Nat Gascon. He has since retired, 
Now, Justice Kassirer is on the Supreme Court. So you look at the, the ripple effects and it's, it's striking. And that turns on how you interpret the word from among, the phrase from among. Justice Moldaver, in his dissent in the Cote case, said, contrary to the view of the majority, the words from among do not, with respect, impose a currency requirement on Quebec appointees. The words convey no temporal meaning. They take their meaning from the surrounding context and cannot on their own support the contention that a person must be a current member of the bar or bench to be eligible for a Quebec seat. In short, they do not alter the group to which Section 6 refers, the group described in Section 5. He says that strongly. He says that perhaps convincingly to some, but not to the six members of the court who decided, no, the interpretation of from among does have a temporal meaning and it does limit who can sit on the Supreme Court of Canada to make a very uncomfortable decision based on their interpretation of the words from among. So does that mean that Justice Moldaver doesn't know how to do statutory interpretation? No. Does that mean that the other six judges don't know how to do statutory interpretation? No. It means that they both applied the tools of statutory interpretation to the same problem, looked at the same statute, had the same evidence before them, and came to different conclusions. One said, you have to be a current member of the Quebec Bar. The other said, you don't have to be a current member of the Quebec Bar. So descriptively, the same statute will be interpreted by different judges in different ways. There is not going to be one universally accepted interpretation of most or maybe almost any statute. That is a hugely important thing to remember because if there is going to be disagreement about how you interpret a statute, who gets to have their interpretation favored is a fundamental question of administrative law. And there's a number of people now who favor a, an articulation of a rule of law concept that says there is only one interpretation of a statute that is correct. And so if an administrative decision maker gets it wrong, then you know the judges must step in and intervene. But they have to grapple with the fact that these judges can't agree on what the statute means either. So that is a descriptively true thing that I want you to take away. Statutory interpretation is hard and different people do come to different interpretations of the same statute. Now, incidentally, though, before I move on to the second major thing I would like you to take away on statutory interpretation, um, I would like to say it's not just issues like, you know, can Justice Nadon sit on the Supreme Court of Canada? A hugely important decision, no doubt, but even more fundamental and life and death decisions turn on a statutory interpretation. For example, in Canada, it has become the law that medically assisted suicide is allowed. The criminal code says a person may receive medical assistance in dying only if they have a grievous and irremediable medical condition and their death has become reasonably foreseeable. This is in the criminal code as an exception to homicide. The stakes could not be higher. This is the law on when it is not homicide to help somebody end their own lives. 
Dr. Brett Belkitz, an emergency room doctor in Toronto and a uh, physician advisory to the Dying with Dignity Canada group who spearheaded a constitutional challenge to the medical assisted dying regulations, said that as a physician, I don't know what reasonably foreseeable means. Is reasonably foreseeable two weeks? Is it three months? Is it 12 months? I mean, it's, it's trite and almost comical to say, well, it's reasonably foreseeable that we're all going to die. So when do you get beyond human mortality and into a reasonably foreseeable death that is on the other side of the statute so that helping somebody end their lives no longer is homicide? Well, it's a statutory interpretation question. So hugely important and subject to reasonable debate are the sort of big things to think about statutory interpretation for the purposes of this course. Two of the big things to think about. The big takeaway I want you to have is that there is a set framework that is applied to questions of statutory interpretation. It is a mantra, as it were. You say this in every statutory interpretation exercise, and then you go off to the races and have your arguments. But there's this framing that is called the modern approach to statutory interpretation. It comes from a professor named Dreiger, who was the leading voice on statutory interpretation. His successor is Ruth Sullivan. She is now the, the leading uh, voice on statutory interpretation. She continued and then eventually supplanted his text. Here it is, okay? This is the mantra that you say in every statutory interpretation case. Today, there is only one principle or approach, namely, the words of an act are to be read in their entire context and in their grammatical and ordinary sense, harmoniously with the scheme of the act, the object of the act, and the intention of parliament. Okay, you practice law, you will say that if you go to court. It is inevitable. I just checked on Canley, and that phrase has been cited 4,500 times by various Canadian courts. So what does this mean? What is, can we break that down a little bit? The words of an act are to be read in their entire context and in their grammatical and ordinary sense, harmoniously with the scheme of the act, the object of the act, and the intention of parliament. It sounds nice, but when you think about it, there's different considerations that are there, read in their entire context. Okay, so what is the context? How far outside of the specific words do you go to get the context? Is that reading the entire paragraph the words come in? Sure. Is it reading the entire section of the act that the words come in? Perhaps. In, and in their grammatical and ordinary sense, so in their context and in their grammatical and, and ordinary sense. And again, you see another tension. Well, grammatical and ordinary, sometimes those aren't the same thing. Um, grammatically, the word literally means one thing. And in common usage, the word literally often means the exact opposite. It means figuratively in many people's common English usage. So. Grammatical and ordinary aren't necessarily the same thing. 
the context and the grammatical and ordinary sense may be in conflict. And then harmoniously with the scheme of the act. So that's how the entire act works together. The object of the act, what does the act in fact accomplish? And the intention of parliament, what was the act trying to accomplish? Well, you've got a number of factors and you are to consider all of them. When you have a number of different factors, how you weigh the different factors will often dictate what outcome you get. One person may say, well, look, the clear intention of parliament was this. I must adhere to this intention. Another person might say, the grammatical and ordinary sense of the word so clearly points towards this outcome. Another person may say, aha, but if you look at the way the whole act logically works together, only this outcome can, can come together. Every single one of those people is going to claim that they are applying this approach to statutory interpretation. They are the ones who are applying this modern approach. They are the one who is reading the act in its entire context, in its grammatical sense, harmoniously with the scheme of the act, the object of the act, and the attention of parliament. I mean, they are, everybody will claim they are the ones who are doing it right. And yet they will emphasize different components of, the, of that approach. So that is where this um, inconsistency in ultimate interpretation probably stems from at a most fundamental level, that you can emphasize different components of the accepted interpretative approach to get to different outcomes. Now, what you have in your book is an excellent resource on statutory interpretation. If you turn to chapter 10, you will see you have a full 100 pages of information on statutory interpretation. Now, I find unless you have a specific problem in mind, it is very difficult to go through and, and internalize all the various rules of statutory interpretation. And indeed, I think you ought to think of them as a toolbox. You aren't going to find a statutory interpretation answer to the most difficult problems that will be uniformly agreed upon. You're going to have different people taking different approaches. So you want to recognize that as your starting point and think about what are the best arguments that can be made for and against a particular interpretation. And to do that, you have to recognize that there is this toolbox of presumptions and ideas and interpretive principles that you can draw upon informing your articulation of the best statutory interpretation. At the end of that chapter, at pages 523 to 525, you have an excellent cheat sheet on statutory interpretation that highlights some of the big ideas, not necessarily every single one of them. And I think more than giving you an answer, it just gives you a greater appreciation for how complicated it is. So if you have a statutory interpretation question to deal with, you need to recognize it's, it's a tricky thing. You don't just read the thing and, and give it your best guess. You look for any precedent, any binding precedent is the 
you know, there you go. If you can find a binding precedent that interprets the statute in a case that's analogous to yours, then certainly that's a, a strong place to start. However, um, in the absence of that, and oftentimes the statute may have been interpreted, but in a different context, and its applicability to your specific set of facts is not even all that clear, you want to recognize the scope of the task that is before you. You want to go get that Sullivan and Dreiger on the interpretation of statutes textbook. You want to look through it, read through it. Read through the full 100 pages of this chapter and do that recognizing that the overarching approach, well, you'll be able to say it by heart in grammatical ordinary context, blah, 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 blah. But the, the nuance, the detail within that, recognize that you are looking to pull out of this toolbox of presumptions and ideas of statutory interpretation, those things which are going to uh, best apply to your case and to allow you to formulate the best argument for a particular interpretation. And if you are not looking to advocate for a particular outcome, you're trying to look at what are the best arguments for or against any given interpretation. And you should always recognize that there is a great chance that if you give your statutory interpretation question to a hundred different judges, you're going to get different answers. So a bit of humility in statutory interpretation is very helpful for a lawyer. Recognize that there's different ways the interpretation could go and you know deal with that for your clients. So I don't want to say more about statutory interpretation because if I start getting into it, I start getting under this tip of the iceberg that we've seen and it kind of can become a bottomless well. I'm happy to discuss it more with students if they have a particular interest in statutory interpretation. But the main takeaways I want you to have in order to move forward into the next uh, material in this course is that it's hard, reasonable people can disagree on an interpretation and that the main approach is this modern approach that's set out by Dreiger and Sullivan, and that within that approach, there is a lot of room to emphasize one part or another part over the other components. And by doing so, you can get to this range of different reasonable outcomes that different people get to on statutory interpretation questions. So that concludes our lecture number two and we will continue with lecture number three which should be posted um, I'm, I'm hoping by Tuesday thank you